0: Are a group of care experts with a vision of creating a world where care experienced people are thriving not just surviving
1: we share our knowledge and experience to inform uplift and empower young care experienced people to navigate the conflicts and challenges of life
2: and this season we cover a range of different topics all with a focus on personal development from relationships mental health and trauma thinking about success and reimagining the care system
3: We know that some of these topics can be triggered. So before you listen, have a read of the summary so you can get an idea of what we'll be talking about. And as always, look after yourself and reach out if you need support.
0: Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of Let's Talk Conflict. Today we're going to be discussing how to access mental health services and why, especially for us as Care Experienced young people, need this support. Today we've got everyone here. Can I get a hello from everyone?
2: Hi. Hi! Hi. Hey.
0: But more importantly, we've got a special guest, Alice Phillips. Alice is a PhD researcher and I'm going to get her to introduce herself. So Alice, Thank you so much for coming on to our podcast. Would you like to introduce yourself and maybe talk about a little bit about yourself? Yeah,
4: I'm really happy to be here. Um, thanks for having me, everyone. So like George said, I'm a PhD researcher at the University of Bath, and I'm a second year PhD student. And my research and is all about the mental health of people who are care experienced. And in particular, I focus on accessing mental health support, which is why I'm here today.
0: As a FYI, we've got two Alices here. So we've got Alice D and Alice P. So if anyone refers to Alice P, it's Alice Phillips. So I would like to open the first question. What kind of support is out there already? And what kind of support have we received? I mean, for me, I've I've had therapy when I was younger. It was a bit of a crisis situation. It wasn't necessarily sort of uh, a prevention sort of case. It was more crisis intervention, but it has been more difficult as I've got older to kind of access that sort of kind of support. Is there um, anyone else? Go on then, Alice. Maybe. This
1: is to um to allow me this week i'm on the phone this week i'm not online so if i've got bad uh, audio i do apologize yeah so i had a lot of therapy when i was younger at first it was crisis intervention and then as it went on it was more like prevention and you know like just molding my brain to make me uh, work right and everything so um yeah i think i was in therapy for about five years altogether that was cams, and. I literally can't recommend it enough. One time therapy doesn't do all, but yeah, it really helped me develop like healthily, mentally, and uh, I wouldn't be the person I am today without it. So yeah, big up, big up the therapy.
3: I've actually had therapy a few times in my life and I have found it very beneficial. I felt like um I was able to explore and learn a lot about what kind of therapies work for me. I've had like um talking therapies as well as alternative therapies. And I felt it was really effective in different time periods of my life. And as I've got older, I've learned what works for me more. And I do feel like I like a mixture of talking therapies alongside alternative therapies. Sometimes because I don't always want to speak. <laughs> I feel like it's really effective and I completely agree with Alice. I feel like it's never too late to access these therapies and like see what works for you. And yeah, I also like the alternative therapies a lot. So I would encourage everyone trying to have an access as much as possible to therapy.
2: Um, I'll jump in. When I was younger, I was one of the people as like I used to think therapy's like not for me, like I'm fine. Like, don't tell me I need therapy when I was like younger and still in the care system. And then I'd been on several like NHS waiting lists and quickly figured out that group therapy wasn't for me. I think it kind of done more damage to me than good. So I didn't finish that. And then had done some talking therapy, like counselling. That really wasn't great for me either. But recently I've... Uh, through a charity organisation I've managed to get like art therapy and I find like I'm kind of distracted by the art that I'm doing and I, like, I'm like i kind of like more open and more inclined to kind of like open up like while I'm kind of distracted and it's going really well and obviously like I'm an adult now and I'm going back and revisiting things like in a, like, a safe way and I really enjoy art. So I think that's really beneficial for me. And I don't think if it wasn't for that charity organisation, I don't really think I would get that through like traditional like NHS. So I think like these different types of therapy obviously aren't for everyone. So like counselling and group wasn't for me. Um, They didn't do me any good. Um, So I think there should be more alternative therapy that should be offered a lot more to like different people.
0: I want to sort of back back to what Ashley said as well, because you know one one size really doesn't fit all and i feel like that's so amplified in in you know when you're when you're trying to get therapeutic treatment there is uh, there is so many other ways and um yeah i wanted to kind of direct this this question at alice p if if possible yeah so what kind of support from her research is out there and also Uh, what she's got to say about it. So Alice, please, we're all listening.
4: Thanks, George. I actually, I wanted to just jump in and say that even from just hearing you guys speak now, You illustrate a really nice point, which is that um, help seeking and getting access to mental health support can be a bit of a journey for people and can also span many, many years um, and take lots of iterations of having a go to try and find the right kind of support that works for you. So I just kind of wanted to say at this point that, you know, if there's anyone out there listening and they feel as if maybe therapy isn't for them, they've tried it or they had it when they were younger and, and they don't think it's for them. Just from the group of people here today, you can hear how many different experiences there are and how it can take a few goes before you find that right kind of support that works for you. Because we're all different and our brains work differently. So, of course, different things are going to help you too. I know Evie wants to speak as well, so I won't talk for too long. But I just um to answer George's question, um, there's a few different ways that you can get support for mental health. For everyone in the UK, there's obviously the NHS, which is um, split up into child and adolescent mental health services and adult mental health services. And I wanted to highlight um that for adult mental health services in the UK, um, because I think a lot of people don't know this, but you you don't actually have to go via like a GP to get access to mental health support as an adult in the UK, you can actually self-refer online so you know that's something that you can do um in your own time um and you don't have to go and speak to a GP and spill your heart out first before you go and you're face to face with a mental health professional um and then there are obviously um options outside of the NHS as well and you can so you can go to charities third sector um to access support and I was doing a little bit of reading around the different kinds of mental health support that might be available specifically for people who have care experience and whilst I couldn't find much by way Way of you know um, formulated therapy um you know, like things like CBT, there is lots of sort of advice and emotion um, support helplines and sort of coaching that you can do um, with different charities. So, for example, The Cum is a charity for um, care experienced people, and they offer one-to-one coaching for 16 to 27-year-olds. So that spans adolescents all the way up into young adulthood as well. Uh, National Youth Advocacy Service as well, and um, they offer side-by-side coaching that can last for up to a year so there are other options outside of the NHS if you are kind of put off by the thought of a formulated therapy and they are also specific for care experienced people as well
0: that's really interesting there's certainly um other options personally a lot of the time we don't know that we don't know that there's there's this other access and I don't want to talk too much because Evie wants to talk chat go on Evie
5: thank you I, well it's just a couple of, it's more so a question, actually, um, to Alice, if that's OK. I was just wondering what the difference between counselling and therapy is. If there is a difference, I'm not too sure. But like we were speaking about our own experiences and stuff like that. And like I went to counselling when I was younger. That's what I called it. That's what it was called to me. But yeah, I suppose I don't necessarily see it as that beneficial to me at the time. I wouldn't knock it and I wouldn't say, oh, therapy's not for me, counselling's not for me. I would never go back or anything like that. But I just think at that time and that person in particular, it just didn't work. But yeah, I'm just thinking like, what's the difference? Question,
4: actually. I don't know of a, like a formal distinction. I don't know of a formal like definition of one or the other. In my mind, and this might not be completely right, counselling is more sort of informal and can cover things like relationship or education or job counselling, like career counselling and that kind of thing, whereas therapy is more mental health focused. And when I think of therapy, I think of sort of unstructured therapy where, you know, you discuss things as they come up and you explore and you kind of go with um, whatever comes up in the sessions versus sort of structured therapy, which might be things like CBT or dbt <laughs> or behavioral activation um so we've sort of formulated you know this session we talk about this one thing this session we talk about this other thing obviously they're all quite flexible really in reality but i guess that's kind of the vague difference between that's what i would say the difference is between the two thank um, you
5: would you be able to just as well for, for people that don't know would you be able to just explain what cbt is and what dbt is what that means and what it stands for?
4: Sure, oh, yeah. So um, CBT is um cognitive behavioral therapy. And when, when we say cognitive, we literally just mean thoughts. They make it sound a lot more complicated than it is. Um but CBT is um generally the recommended therapy for most mental health difficulties, um, according to NICE guidelines, which are these um guidelines that people write that advise um people who work in the NHS, you know, what therapy therapy you should offer for what kind of difficulties people are having so CBT is very um, thoughts focused um, and behavior as well because it's cognitive behavioral therapy Um, and so you might be offered that for things like anxiety or depression and it's a lot about sort of recognizing your thought patterns catching them and sort of changing them so uh, with the idea that that will improve your mental health. So DBT is dialectical behavioral therapy, which um, is similar to CBT but it's slightly more intensive and it tends to be offered to people who have things like personality disorders. And um, it involves working through previous experiences in a way that CBT doesn't. So it's much more about um, working through past trauma. And yeah, and I, I mean, I'm I'm not a clinical psychologist myself. So perhaps you could get a clinical psychologist on to talk about um, different therapies that exist. Um, but this is from my, you know, my understanding of what dbt is
1: thank you for that that's really really interesting you know because one of the things i've always thought about cbt is it's very superficial right now let's look at your behavior right now let's change it right now but let's not really look about where that comes from why are you doing this how did it come about and i've always thought like cbt is great if you've got past the the nitty-gritty of like the inside of the problem where it came about you know, and then you start dealing with your behaviours now. But on on its own, especially like with care experience and past trauma, I don't think CBT for me would have worked the, well, the way it did because I had like talking therapy first, then CBT after, and I had like three years of talking therapy and then two years of CBT. So, yeah, I I always wondered like why did they just give us CBT? Well, that DBT is like really interesting.
4: I will say, actually, just on something that um, Alice just said, is that there is some work that my supervisor is doing. So um, I'm part of a team of people who do research on care experience and mental health. Um, But I do have some colleagues who focus more on trauma um, and and how to treat um, young people who have experienced trauma. And my colleague Becky um, is doing a trial of trauma-focused CBT, So there are different ways in which CBT has been adapted. It was originally formulated for depression, but now there's CBT for anxiety, CBT for psychosis, CBT, uh, mindfulness based CBT, CBT for trauma. Um, So there are different ways that you can adapt it for things like trauma. So perhaps you guys haven't come across that, but um, that does exist.
5: (laughs) That what you just said, Alice, that, yeah, it is out there. Um, but we just might not know about it like I think that's that is the thing like there are some amazing things out there to support people there's some amazing initiatives but we don't actually know about it you know and that's like if you do go to say I don't know I know from personal experience when I've gone to the doctors and asked to seek help to say look out I'm struggling I need support in something their first response or to that has been, would you like to start taking some medication to help you with that? Which, in all honesty, no, I don't. That is not something, and you know, yeah. if that's something that someone else wants to do, by all means, like that is completely your choice. If that is what works for you, then that's brilliant. But personally, I've tried it, it didn't work for me, and I know as well in myself that that's only masking the issue like it's not actually going to the root of the the issue and and actually fits in anything it's just putting a little plaster over it for a little time so yeah it's just made me think that there can be some great things out there but what's offered to us first off and what people think is available is very very small and not always that helpful
4: um, at this point i i wanted to highlight there's a um, a helpline that you can call um, i think it's run by mind it's a an info line so if if you're at that point where you're kind of thinking oh i, I might need some external support for some things I'm struggling with you can call this info line and they'll talk to you about the support options that are available local to you and have a discussion with someone who sort of doesn't have any skin in the game and if that makes sense you know talk to somebody independent about this different kinds of support that are available local to you and also maybe have a discussion about actually what you want um, before you go forward and you know try and access that support I just thought that was quite a nice little service that um, exists
0: yeah, I'm. I, I completely echo what you're saying, Evie, and I think as well from what you're saying, Alice P is navigating how we're going to access this support. So I wanted to ask you, well, direct this question to you, Alice P. From your research, what can you see that are sort of barriers to to get what we need, essentially?
4: Sure, Um I, I think before really diving into this, um, my answer is it's worth highlighting that. Um, those people who are working in the NHS, so, you know, your clinical psychologists or your psychological wellbeing being practitioners, um, they are working at the moment under sort of extreme pressure um, and limited resources and offering the best care that they can under, um, you know, really tight budgets that they're working under. So um, before we sort of go on to talk about some of the issues there, it's worth just highlighting um, that these people are really trying um, their hardest to offer the best support that they can. but, and that sort of leads me really nicely onto my first point, which is, I mean, the main barrier um, for accessing mental health support at the moment, just generally for everybody in the UK, um, is that our NHS services are sort of underfunded. And that has a big impact on things like wait times and availability of support. So I was looking um, at some statistics before coming on to this call, and I found some by a group called the Local Government Association, who essentially look at Sort of local matters and and they update statistics on um mental health services as well. And so talking specifically about children and young people services, which sometimes ends at the age of eighteen but occasionally can go up further into um young adulthood, but usually the age cap is eighteen. And just between, I think it was April and June two thousand and twenty one. There were just under 200,000 referrals to children and young people services, which is a 134% increase on the year before. And the year before, they had a 94% increase on the statistics in 2019. Meanwhile, we sort of had sustained real terms cuts to um, public services since about 2014. So, you know, that is um, a massive problem for our mental health services. And um, that's meant that um, I think the most recent statistics I could find on this were 2018, but essentially only 20% of young people who are receiving treatment do so within the allocated sort of four week target time. So we try to get people accessing support within four weeks in children and adolescent mental health services. That's only happening for around 20% of young people. So we are at like a really tricky point when it comes to mental health and accessing that. But anyway, so that's generally, but just talking about specifically for care experienced people, Actually, it's really difficult to assess that. Um, it's really difficult to assess whether or not we have a problem with care experienced people accessing mental health support. And the reason for that is because when our government publishes statistics on mental health um, services, they don't distinguish between those who are care experienced and those who are not, or even children who are in care or those who aren't. So um, us as researchers, it's really hard for us to tell. And and there is a little bit of research on this, but it tends to be from America, where obviously their mental health services work completely differently. And also, you know, there's some research as well that looks at whether there are particular groups within care experience people that struggle more than others to access mental health support. So looking at things like demographics or care experiences. But again, because this research is is done in America or um, in other places within Europe where their mental health services work completely differently to ours, it's really difficult for us to sort of draw any conclusions based on their research. And also they tend to find very different results to each other, all of the bits of research finds different demographics are or are not accessing services. I'm aware I'm like talking a lot, but, <laughs> but, but I did just want to highlight that um, there is some stuff that we do know, and I'm sure that um, you guys can build on this as well from your own personal experiences. But what, you know, one of the main barriers to accessing mental health services for especially young people whilst they're in care is things like placement stability. So we know from government reviews that sometimes young people who are in unstable placements or a moving house a lot sometimes have their mental health support withheld until they're in a stable placement but that causes problems because we also know that those who are in unstable placements are also most likely to be those who are struggling with their mental health the and um, which creates a cycle of well i can't access mental health support so i'm you know m- i might behave in a way that means that i get moved um to another home um and then any referrals i did have you know to get access to mental health support have fallen through so yeah so that's one of the main barriers that um we do have for accessing mental health support is that um placement instability i do have more to say but i'll wait for everyone else to talk a bit and then i'll come back in
0: I find that really interesting, actually. Um, you know, because I, the, when you said there's no there's no actual data that distinguishes between care experienced children and and other children, I found that really interesting because you know it's probably from my assumption that it's going to be predominantly care experienced children that are going to need the mental health services I would guess like we would we would take up quite a big percentage of that
1: yeah and also it's been a massive uh, conversation within the care experience community about giving us protected characteristics like you know how disability is a protected uh, characteristic or I can't even quite what it's called but yeah basically we would we would be protected in that right so it would end up being like one of the tick boxes in you know when you say like what your sexual orientation is what your gender is whatever you know it would be something that you would pick but yeah it would be then recorded i think that that's another thing that would be quite good i mean i'm for the protective char- characteristic um i mean some of us would go as far as to say that we'd like a completely separate mental health service for uh, care experienced people and like have departments within like the housing association all that kind of thing because you know anything any one any one organization that is our corporate parent should have a care experience like department so yeah that's that's really interesting how it really does like translate to even the research being done by researchers about mental health and care experience like how it could actually potentially help us.
0: And another thing I, I found interesting as well was the was the placements that you spoke about. And, you know, that that really is the penny dropping for us. I think when we're, yeah. when we're being moved about so much, you know, we lose that what we're trying to build. And this is clearly affecting mo- most of the things we've got got going on. I noticed Alice, Alice P this time you wanted to speak. Sorry, go on.
4: Yeah, I wanted to pick up on something Alice just said about um, having mental health services specifically for care experienced people. So, as far as I'm aware, um, in terms of adult mental health services, I don't know of any NHS site that has specific services for. Adults who are care experienced. But I do know that depending on your local authority, and this is a bit of a difference between CAMS and adult mental health services, CAMS is different depending on where you are in the UK and what is on offer is different depending on where you are in the UK. So I know there are um, some sites in the UK that do have looked after children. Um, mental health services so services specifically for people who are in care or um whereas with adult mental health services is a lot more uh, uniform across the country what's on offer so that does exist in some areas but it kind of is a little bit of a um postcode lottery
5: yeah we
1: hear that word a lot that was we're lit- trying to
5: abolish yeah that is literally something that i was just going to say like that was my point was loads of things that, that you that you're speaking about today alice is like reiterating so many other things that we've spoke about in like previous podcasts and like that is something the postcode lottery is something that we've spoke about in general for for loads of different things not just accessing mental health support or anything like that but just the postcode lottery in general and how wrong it is and that you know it, it shouldn't be like that anymore and like how we could try and change it but Yeah, I think like another point that you were bringing up is like the lack of funding to the NHS NHS for this and everything. And that's something that we scream about anyway, is just like the lack of funding for social services and the care system in general. And like we were talking about, you know, the stability of of when you do actually manage to, to get access to support, then when you do it can drop off because like you're not in a suitable accommodation so that you're constantly moving around. It's not stable for you. But something that I've actually experienced myself is the doctors moving around the, The therapists moving around, they've been changed like doctors, surgeries to to work from or from different offices or whatever. They've been changed to completely different boroughs at times, meaning that you might build a rapport with someone and then they end up moving and then you meet someone else and then you don't actually gel with them as much. And it's really sticky because it's both sides. It's not just the young people moving around, but it's also the professionals that are moving around, the the therapists, the counsellors that are also moving that are being moved from place to place. And that's obviously as well linked to funding. So there is, there will be a link to funding in that. So it's like without funding being sorted, how, like how can they sort the other stuff out type thing? And another thing that I just wanted to speak about as well was when you were speaking about the statistics and things like that, it made me so sad. But as well, like when you said, you know, they don't record, there's no no way to, to differentiate between someone who's care experienced and who isn't, you know, that that data is recorded. And that like kind of gave me a bit of a pit in my stomach. It just made me think no one's eyes are on are on this. Like no one's got the right, if, if this data isn't being recorded, that means it's not being looked at. And if it's not being looked at, then that's a massive issue because how can social services be accountable for like supporting young people when they don't know what they're doing, when they're not recording, if they are. Yeah, there will definitely be records of things somewhere, but if it's so hard to access, yeah, how can they know whether they're doing a good job or not? Like, how can they actually see whether they're supporting young people? And, you know, where young people are at, how many young people are accessing, that are in care, are accessing this support, you know? It just makes me really worried and just makes me think
4: yeah so this sort of brings me on to a piece of work that I'm actually doing at the moment and um this is work that has not yet been published, which means that it's not been peer-reviewed by other researchers. And so the results of what I'm about to say might change or um you know might be slightly different when it comes to actually being published. And, and I will make sure to share it sort of on my Twitter as well and share it with you guys as well, so that you can see the results once that is out there. So I have been doing some work on rates of being referred to mental health services for children in care. And so what I have access to is a small data set of um, information taken from social care records so not NHS records which means it's limited because just because something's not in their social care records doesn't mean it didn't happen it just means it's not recorded so I you know the amount of conclusions that I can draw from this data are very limited but um, what I did find in my um, sort of cohort of around 100 young people and these were people who entered care and in their first year of being in care had mental health difficulties, which was recorded via the SDQ, which is that questionnaire that gets filled out about young people every year that they're in care and about their mental health. And so the the cohort of young people that I was looking at were people who were scoring really high on that in their first year of being in care. And what I did find was that actually rates of referral were really high. So um, I think only one fifth of the sample was not referred to mental health services but actually problems occurred after the referral Um, and so I think this is a good point to make anyway that it's not necessarily just about accessing support but it's about accessing the right support and about retention once you're in support actually staying engaged with that support or being able to maintain you know continue to go to the therapy sessions Um, and what I did find was that you know there were a proportion of referrals that were rejected even though there's an identified need there Um, and then there was also quite high levels of support that broke down prematurely so I can't remember the exact figure but I think it was um, under half um, but still quite substantial amount of uh, young people within the cohort that I was looking at where their support started and then just ended before it was supposed to end and the main reasons for that were things like placement instability disengagement from the young people a disengagement from parents or things like um or you know like all carers and things like like ongoing court proceedings meaning that accessing therapy isn't the right time for them at that point and this is only a, a really small piece of research and definitely needs to be looked at with a much bigger group of young people but i think it sort of highlights some of the things that we're saying which is <laughs> there are definitely some issues there
0: yeah i mean it took me not going to school for two years to get my uh, therapy so i can i can definitely yeah. feel you on that one alice yeah we're uh, not
5: advocating for that by the way any no, no, listeners
0: no. any people yeah. would go to school for <laughs> them you know? that actually looks my, ne- my next question and obviously th- this can be directed at alice p but i wanted to ask everyone else first what kind of solutions do you think is needed to to kind of tackle these barriers most specifically for you know for us for care experienced people and at the end of that what should we try What what is the aim what we're we trying to aim for i think you know from what alice alice p said earlier and i think we can all agree with this there's instability with where we live and the actual people we have around us you know are not always they are the barriers like essentially they are the barriers and I feel like if we can have a a clear path or a priority path or a clear way to be diagnosed to be referred and then to get the the help we need for as long as we need it I mean if there's a clear way of doing that I feel I feel like at the moment it's very murky and it's like a maze I don't know how anyone else feels about it, but that's, to me, I feel like that would be sort of the main focus.
5: I can go next for what my suggestion would be. Like, I think I've got quite a few ideas that I think, oh, I'd like to set up maybe to support people, but I think the main thing, like, right here and right now for a solution is we need more funding for everything. And I know that lots of different departments and services are, are underfunded i completely get that but i just feel like something needs to be done about it and like that's the biggest thing for me like finding a way to make that possible is my solution i suppose
1: um i've got so many possible solutions or ideas but i think like one of the main issues especially when i think back like me i couldn't wait for therapy I'm um, one of the odd ones out it was very uncommon um people that I knew at school that were care experienced did not want to be anywhere near any type of professional let alone mental health or you know whoever it was and a lot of the time because I'd be going to therapy and being like oh my god you should go like they're in your corner they're you know they they give me hope they give me encouragement and yeah sometimes sessions are difficult but I always came back the next week like yeah no they were right kind of thing and the thing that my friends used to say to me, that care experience, was there's nothing wrong with me. I don't need to go. There's nothing wrong with me. There's nothing wrong with me. And I feel like I get that as well, because when I was in care, like I'm speaking personally now. Uh, there was like a big light on us or on me all the time. You know, the pet reviews, the lack reviews, what's Alice been doing wrong lately? It was all kind of you. you never had any chance to make a mistake it was always judgment 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 and I was blamed a lot by social workers for being in care like it was my fault if you just behave we wouldn't you wouldn't be in care like stuff like that and that wasn't the case at all but we spend so much of our time in care trying not to be the ones that are broken the ones that are at fault and then you have the stigma of mental health issues on top of that and you're just like no I can't be poorly I can't be mentally unwell I have to be okay I'm the only one that's in my corner if I show any weakness like I think that is one of the main issues where we need to feel like therapy is part of a route to success not an admission of any kind of fault or damage like it's not a negative thing um I think like education and and breaking the stigma for one would be a better way of doing it um clearer path you know clearer access your specialized treatment when you get there there's so much there's so much and also if young people don't feel like that they're able to have therapy when they're younger when they do reach adulthood making you know a care experience former informed kind of uh, access to therapy for care people when they become adults is something that I think is like desperately needed because when you're in care you're surrounded by professionals and there's this kind of like buzz all the time like you're always held up somehow some way and then you turn 18 and it's just absolute deafening silence and you're like oh I really am that poorly I really do need that help and then the other mental health services you can't access because it's just years and years long waiting lists and the type of therapy that you can get is not the right one and yeah so those are my two like main possible ideas. I think just echoing
2: what other people have said about like the funding and um alternative things like art therapy sport therapy and things like I think that should be really important but I think like I was one of the children when I was in care that therapy's not for me like I would go and I would sit and I would stare at them and hardly say anything I think there should be like see once you've declined that once like time moves on I think you should be re-offered that time and time again and I think yeah. there definitely should be some sort of priority but I think if you're going through like the leave care process where they evaluate you to see if you're ready for like your first flat or moving in somewhere I think therapy should be part of that I think when you leave care you should be like not only like help with your budgeting and things like that and help with like travelling or finding a course or finding a job I think within that there should be some sort of therapy point like whether that's counselling or whether that's like art therapy talking therapy like whatever like I do think that should be in the process to you leaving care so that when you leave care like something doesn't trigger you from your past like you leave care and you're positive and you're healthy and like you're moving on in adulthood I do think that should be put in to leaving care yeah. it should be a stepping stone do you know what I mean like just because you can get up and you can get out and you can get washed and dressed like and you can go to your course or you can go to your job or you can go to school like it doesn't mean that there's not things that are in the back burner that should be addressed. I think counselling should be for everyone, That some sort of therapy should be for everyone because everyone, we've all been through one thing or another. But I do think yeah. priority needs to be taken into account and it can't just be this postcode lottery, like if you've got a good worker or there's good services in your area, it should be across the board so that everyone's being treated like equal. Um. There are all some
4: really, really good ideas and actually most of them are things that I had written down when I was thinking about this question as well. Um I, th- I think for me it starts with um better monitoring and a better understanding of what's already happening for children in care and in particular care leavers. Um there is a good amount of research now on um children in care and then um, attitudes towards help seeking in young people or adolescents in care, but um in terms of care leavers and especially that short period, the first five Five years after you age out of care it's kind of unknown Um, and it is something that I'm looking at in my PhD is looking at experiences of accessing mental health support in those early years of um, having left care so yeah anyway better monitoring I see is really important and I also think and it's something that um, you guys have already said but introducing safety nets so that when young people are accessing support if they move house, move borough or whatever, that they can still access the same mental health support even though they've moved house. And then also having capacity within our mental health services to allow someone to re engage flexibly um, with mental health services without having to go to the back of the waiting list again. So if you're accessing mental health support, and I did mention earlier that um, sort of disengagement from young people is a bit of a problem within our young people services. But it's really important then that. someone is ready and when they feel up for it and they want to go and get mental health support they're not just at the bottom of the waiting list they're able to you know come back in where they picked uh, where they left off I think I see that as really important as well and then something that Alice was talking about was about some of the concerns that young people have around accessing mental health support and it was something I was going to talk about earlier where There was a paper that was released last year by somebody called Powell and they looked at all of the research out there on attitudes to mental health support in young people who are currently in care and they found some really common themes across young people about concerns about you know why they wouldn't necessarily want to access professional mental health support and it was some of the things that Alice was saying so uh, a general sort of concern about confidentiality or a mistrust of mistrust of professionals generally like a fear of lack of control over how much you're going to be expected to say um, and who you're going to have to share it with and how many different people you're going to have to repeat your story to and then also just like Alice was saying as well like, uh, concerns over stigma and that's sort of threefold so not only stigma over mental health not only stigma in, over accessing mental health support but also stigma around being a care experienced person and, and trusting that the professional that you're talking to can understand your particular experiences because you do have unique experiences over and above the general population So I think it's really important to improve our mental health services that we make sure that we're addressing those concerns in young people um, before we're asking them to engage with mental health services you know actually having conversations about what's going to happen Um, it is up to you how much you say those kinds of conversations just so that people understand what they're being asked to do because I think in society um, the idea of going to therapy is you lay on a couch and somebody asks you about your childhood so I
1: think it's important (laughs) to address that that's not
4: always the case so yeah that's what I hope changes in the future and also just to say that I mean it doesn't just start with changing our mental health services I think generally care experienced people care leavers need better support it's hard to encourage someone to go and address their anxiety with CBT if they're struggling to pay their gas bill so you know support starts first and then mental health um, once people have the space
0: that's really interesting to get your perspective Alice certainly someone that's got an eye from outside within it's really interesting I was going to wrap up on uh, what would we tell our younger selves, I can start off with that. Yeah, what i tell my younger self is uh, I think definitely do therapy, but I think that for me personally, I needed an alternative as well. You know, I, I didn't like sitting there talking about how bad I am or what's wrong with me and all these things, it kind of reinforcing that stigma. Whereas, you know, when I was going doing something else, where I was a bit more active maybe, or that definitely helped as well. Reinforcing that to my younger self. What would you guys tell your younger self?
1: What I would tell my younger self, I'm going to say that my behaviour then was a coping mechanism and it kept me alive and it let me survive and I actually ended up uh, accessing the therapy that I needed. Um, But yeah, no, um, I'm just going to look back with a bit more compassion and I think I would tell my younger self that, Even though therapy is hard sometimes, never stop going. Just a bit of perseverance and faith that it will be okay. I think that's what I tell my younger self.
2: Um, something I would tell my younger self would be that mental health is like a roller coaster. Like you can't always be fine. Like you don't need to never show any emotions. Like it's all right to be vulnerable, like around the right people. And no one is a hundred percent fine all the time. And if they are, they're lying. <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's okay not to be okay. Yeah, completely.
2: Everyone is off days and tomorrow's always a new day type thing. Can I jump in quickly?
3: (laughs) Um, I would say to my younger self, I personally feel like um, I've never been ashamed to get therapy, even at a young age. So I'll probably say to myself, take my time with it. And I pretty much do the same thing that I've done now, which is explore different kinds of therapy, see what works for me and don't be ashamed to ask for Advice or seek advice on other alternative therapies, because um, I feel like choice—you can never go wrong with choice, especially when it comes to your mind and you know how you're feeling. You should have more options than one and be able to um, set your boundaries and like how you want to approach dealing with yourself and like helping yourself on the way.
4: Um, I think a bit like Leanne, um, I've always been very pro therapy. Um, I, de- I know I went to camps when I was younger and have access mental health support through NHS and private through the university in my adulthood anyway. So um, I'm sort of one of the, I think one of the lucky ones who um, have had positive associations with therapy anyway. But I would definitely tell myself that it's also okay to be open and vulnerable with your friends and your family as well, uh, the people around you that you love. Um, because something that I think a lot of people are guilty of is that they um, hold a lot in and they hold a lot on their shoulders and they don't want to show their vulnerability to the people that they love Um, and I think that's actually only something that I've learned um, in my later young adulthood is um, how to even sort of have those conversations with friends so it's not always just about you know practice what you preach a bit uh, you know go to your therapy sessions be open and, and talk to them Um, but also make sure that you're being a bit more honest in life as well you know if you're having a bad day or if you're struggling with something something's playing on your mind um being open to discussing that with your friends because they're there to lean on as well um that's probably what I would tell my younger self (laughs) I really
3: like that being honest with yourself that's a really good one yeah very hard to do sometimes
0: Okay, well, I think that's it for today, guys. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you soon. Huge thank you to Alice Phillips as well for coming today.
1: You're all really nice. Thank you very much. (laughs) (laughs) You're really nice, too. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Thank
3: you for listening to Let's Talk Conflict.
1: We'd love to hear from you, so if you'd like to get in touch, you can reach us on Let's conflict at leapcc.org.uk or find us on Twitter and Instagram at leap underscore cc.
2: This podcast has been produced in partnership with Leap Confronting Conflict and edited by Helena Webb.
5: This Talk Conflict has been supported by the Esme Fairburn Foundation, the Curtin Magda Stern Foundation,
3: the Treebeard Trust and the Rain Foundation. In the next episode we'll be discussing rejection and abandonment, understanding trauma and the journey of healing. We will be joined by two guests who are both care experienced and who both now work in the care system.